Yeah, welcome back to the Nigerian Filmmaker, a podcast for us to talk about Nigerian filmmakers, their films, and how it can build a diverse and functional industry. I'm your host, Selegot. On this episode, my guest is Alexandra Hu. She's a writer and director and has worked on a range of shorts, feature films, and TV series. We talk about story structure within the Nigerian context, what it takes to be a modern Nigerian filmmaker, and how to deal with self-doubts. If you're a new listener, you're welcome, and I hope you enjoy Hi Alex, you're welcome to the Ninja Filmmaker. Hello, what's up? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, fine. Good. Thank God for life, you know. Okay. Can you introduce yourself? Okay, so my name is Alexandra Ho, also known as Alex. I'm a writer, I'm a director. Yeah. I'm a filmmaker. Okay. So can you tell us how you got started in filmmaking? Um, okay, so I like television interesting story like I think we always like any filmmaker or any content creator or any artist like there was a part in your childhood that made you realize that you're going to do film right yeah so it's like I think it's that thing for me and I tell this story a lot people don't believe me I don't know how you judge me for it but I'm still gonna say yeah so I think my earliest memory of storytelling was from my childhood like I used to lie a lot yeah I used to lie a whole lot. Like, I was that kid that, you know those kids in primary school that would say things like, oh, my house flew. I went to London for the weekend and that was me. That was like, that's my MO. Yeah. And so that time, it was childish values, but people would just, like, they know I'm lying, but they'll just sit down, especially my aunties and my mom. They'll sit down with the king. Like, just wait for, like, the lie is interesting, so they'll wait for me to finish. Yeah. They'll wait for me to finish um, lying. And well, they'll, enjoy, they'll even ask questions. They'll even ask questions about one or two characters that I've created. Really enjoy it. Mm. When they are done, they'll now beat me for lying. And obviously, I'll tell the truth. Like, So, yeah, that's how it started. But I think that that's my earliest form of telling stories. When I went to university, I had this senior... Um, school mother at that time mm. so your senior student that takes care of you yeah. and she was not was that secondary school university secondary school okay and she was not big online so she just really had a problem with me always trying to like make the truth more interesting that even if i'm telling the truth i just want to make it more interesting yeah and so she sat me down one day and she told me that you know like if you write a book now that's when she was graduating i was in gesture at that time and she was like instead of always like and she said in kind of like preaching because mm. she was a very spiritual person and a very religious person. So she was just trying to advise me about not lying and what the good book says about lying. Yeah. And she, so she bought me um, 40 leaves, like a set of 40 leaves, mm. right? A set of 60 leaves and a pack of virus. And she was like, man, like, yeah, so your lies are so like innovative. And do you know that you can write a book? Like, instead of anytime you feel like you want to lie or you want to like exaggerate the truth, just yeah. keep that thought and put it in this book. So she gave me that book. 
and that's when I realized that. So obviously, I consciously I I don't lie again. But I consciously made an effort to stop lying from that day. But I never was able to write in a book. Like anytime I opened the book to write like proofs or anything, it didn't really like. I didn't see my stories come to life or like even so I never I still have that book in my house and I still have not the virus but I still have the book yeah so I never really wrote. wrote in them then in university I was a dancer and in 300 level there was an audition for a dance movie yeah at that time it never came out but there was an audition for a dance movie that never came out and so I went to audition and I got picked for the lead role and okay. that was the first time I saw a script and my like it was like I found the lost love it's yeah. like I felt like I I can't tell uh, like it was like I literally found a lost lover like the this holding the script felt so familiar to me even if i had never seen a script before yeah. it's like this is how i just realized that this is how i want my stories to be told this is how i see my stories the way it was written the way i could relate to the pattern and all that mm. that was when i realized that the reason why i was never able to write because art and um, filmmaking prose painting is all part art art is a form of storytelling yeah. and um we, we always have to choose our medium and so your medium can be music your medium can be um painting your medium can be prose poetry spoken words and like the whole variation and i was being forced because of old media and yeah. like literary artists were more and we're more respected than filmmakers at the time. And that's why my school mother at that time was trying to force me to be literal, like a writer mm. than like maybe she might not have even known about filmmaking. She wasn't exposed to it. So I just, at that point, I realized that the reason why I could never write a book was, and she promised me that if I ever wrote a book, she would do anything possible to make sure it get published. Mm. And the reason why I could never write a book is because I never saw my stories in the book form. Okay. So it was easy. I figured that out. The writer of the screenplay at that time, um, I haunted the guy. I literally stalked the guy on Facebook. And thankfully, he was living close to me. So I was able to start, like, started sending him stuffs and ideas and I had that I had. And he was gracious enough to take me under his wings and put me through and teach me like from the basic so and he was a very he was a he was an academically trained he is he's not dead he is an academically trained writer yeah. and he's like a master of his craft and he is a scholar of the art so i really learned i really had a good foundation learning when i started learning how to write and it was easy for me and then i realized that in the space of filmmaking I also still had, like, I still liked directing and this, and I could tell, I realized that that was another medium I could use to tell my stories. So, oh. yeah, that is it. That's how I fell in love with filmmaking specifically. As a storyteller, I think I've always told stories, but in different, um, as a lawyer. <laughs> oh, okay. I just tell stories as a writer. 
Yeah. Um, director. So um, you say you're a writer director. When was the first time you um, worked on a film behind the camera? Okay, so anyway, sure. The first thing I worked on was a music video. Okay, okay before that, um, after I had the film that never came out, the dancing yeah. film that Why never didn't came it come out. out? I don't know, I'm not the producer. I wish I knew. Yeah. I'm a producer. Like obviously and that brings us to the question of how like the industry really, really like it's been like they are superheroes in Nigeria and they are called filmmakers. Yeah. Being a filmmaker in Nigeria is two times as hard. It's two times harder than being a filmmaker in Cameroon or Lume or yeah. being in Republic. And I'm not lying. It is stressful, like you are being stressed from every angle of the triangle. Um obviously they had that constraint making film in Nigeria was really it was like I don't even know I I don't want to say it's easier now mm. because my experience might not be the experience of others. And I again I was not making film then. So I cannot really I'm not in the right place of mind. I'm not in the right position to judge which is better, which is harder, which is easier, harder to make film. Yeah. But I'll just like to assume that the reason why it didn't come out is because they tried their best and their best wasn't good enough in terms of meeting to a lot of um a lot of problems, Nigerian problems and Nigerian constraints that affected the film industry at that time. Mm. They tried they were fighting directly against the green. Even I was just a dancer that was I'm hired to act the part, but yeah. I could see some battles and I didn't know anything about film. I didn't know anything about camera. I didn't know anything about production. I didn't know anything about anything. But I could like see some of the battles that they fought at that time. Location battles, agro battles, found funding, people promising money and never showing up. Mm. Um, the film was fundraised. So they started production with some people that had already brought in money while yeah. so other people had promised and, and like that too. Like I saw those problems. I saw I saw problems of pain um, actors, directors. Um, they just they just had a lot of issues that to be honest, I'm not like I didn't I, I wasn't even aware at that time. You know, it was just this happy kid that just at, at that time I think I was nineteen going on twenty I, mean, I was twenty mm, okay. at that time. So I just I was just this happy kid that just wanted to um do you understand? I just wanted to dance and do her thing and then found this love of screenplay. Yeah. I didn't really pay attention to what they make you work on, never really act. So yeah. Okay. So back to the first um behind the camera experience. That's yeah, I, I like being an actor that's what I'm saying, being yeah. an actor at that time, that's it. The other one would be aside that would be I think the first time I was behind the camera was um for a music video. Yeah. I just at that time at finished school I was looking for, I was waiting for my NYC but I had this contract job with Federal Ministry of Agriculture at that time. And then I knew a film but I was still always trying to get into the film um space yeah so i met this guy who was going to shoot a music video in nasara like a series of 11 music videos mm. and so i 
Back then, at that time, like I was so intrigued with just anything film. So I just used to, I'll just see someone shooting on the road. And I'm going somewhere also. Yeah. I'm literally going somewhere else. And then I'll just park, come down from the car or the bike or anything, mode of transport. I mean, and just stand there and introduce myself and start following them around. So mm. yeah, that's how I met one person. I was going to shoot a music video. I can't do that now because Nigeria is not safe. And I don't, I trust people a lot less now. But mm. then I was very, very naive and trusting. I was going to shoot a music video in Suleja. And do you know what I did? I packed my bags and I went to him. <laughs> and for 11 days, I was in Suleja. Yeah. Did the music video last, like, they shot it for 11 days? Yeah, for 11 days. One music video a day. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, multiple, 11, yeah. yeah. And that was my experience. So I was his camera assistant to yeah. hold the camera, hold the lenses. Um, yeah, I learned how to clean lenses. I learned how to fix lenses. I learned a lot about lenses at that time. I learned a lot about lenses. I learned a lot about, was it five? It was a 7D, Canon 7D at that time. So I learned a lot about Canon 7D. Yes, I learned a lot about music video, track and dolly, mm. the whole nine yards. Okay. And it was, yeah, it was quite an experience. After I came back from that, I shot my first shot film. Okay. Okay, so yeah, like, um, you have very humble beginnings in filmmaking. Like, when did you realize you wanted to, like, write and direct? Okay, so I realized I wanted to write and direct. Definitely, after the film where I danced, I, I, that never came out. The, let's call it the one that got away. Yeah. The film that got away. After that, um, I was still in contact with a lot of people on set at that time. And I still, till now, have long-term relationships with a lot of people that I met on that set. Hmm. Um, a lot of people behind the scenes at that time. So one of them, while I was still learning how to write, um, one of them was um, was enrolling, in, was going, he's a producer, he is a producer, but he was trying to, um, he was trying to write something and he didn't have the time to write it mm. and so i was like oh i can use this to learn like since you don't have to because he was producing a documentary at that time and he was trying to write something for a competition but he didn't have time to write it so he just said it in passing that oh he really wanted to go, get into this competition but he yeah. doesn't have the time and you know me now my chatterbox exciting and personality at that time I was like, oh no, no, no I, I can use it and learn now i'm trying to looking for what write and since you don't have the time, let me just like, like use this as my training. Yeah. So which is what I did at the time. I wrote the script for him. It was badly. The story was good, obviously. Tell me the story. But in terms of structure and like technicality and formatting, yeah. it was badly written. But it was like, I was so proud of it. So I gave it to him, he read it, he loved the story, but obviously the formatting and everything that it worked, so he reformatted it mm. and sent it for the festival and he won. He wanted to put my name on, like, my name is not on that work, Yeah. and um, for good reason. It's not like any bad blood or it was stolen, and I don't tell people the name of the film, I don't try to, because, and I'm only saying this, I'm only saying this now because I'm telling my history of film. But yeah. people always, when you tell someone that, oh, I did this and I love it and I still respect this work, people always assume that you've been cheated. No. Hmm. I literally didn't want my name on it because I didn't think I was good enough and I was using it as a training wheel. Yeah. So, and I'm glad I didn't put my name on it because 
um, I'm glad that he didn't like he gave me the opportunity to have my name on it but i'm glad i didn't take that opportunity because that's what motivated me to write my own and yeah. then win my own award okay that was my first writing experience okay and that's how i started writing so i started my career as a writer yeah i actually did start i wrote i wrote like a year two years before I wrote like a year or two years before I started actually directing, I knew I wanted to direct, but I was into more writing, and that's why, like, till now, till this day, I try. I can count on main things. I think it's only like two things that I've written and directed. I, when I write, I try not to be the director. When I direct, I try not to be the writer. I always like to interpret other people's work, yeah, and I always like to see how other people interpret my work. Um, at first, I didn't really understand that, mm. but then I wrote again. I wrote a short story for a foundation, yeah. and I was on set while they were shooting it. And so, at that time, I was I was like, no, this is not what I wrote. This is not how I wrote. This is not how I know. I was just that chatterbox of a writer that was a pain as mm. a pain in the behind for the director. But when the film came out, it was. Like the film was literally what I wanted to see. Yeah. That there were some things that I wanted to see in the film because the film was a PSA. Yeah. It was a it was a PSA for for a certain thing. So there were things that I really wanted to see in the film, but I couldn't. Mm. And when the director, when I saw the director's work, the, like there were things that words filled me. Like in terms of emotion, I was very young. Um, learning growing writer at that time so in mm. terms of channeling my emotions or some certain level of emotions to a character I didn't I, I didn't really know how to do it but I knew what I wanted but when the film came out it was exactly how I felt how I wanted the character to feel mm. how I felt about the character the director was able to translate that and there was no way that I would have been able to do that yeah. and I realized that and I accept that accepted that so from that day I really really like I still hold maintain that I don't want to direct what I've written and I don't want people to I like I don't want the same thing I don't direct what I've written I want mm -hmm. to write what I would direct because so, I feel yeah did, did you guys have a conversation on what you were trying to get across or they just read like they just went on the script and interpreted yeah, oh, it yes the interpretation was I think obviously I had one or two conversations with the director yes I did but even yes i did and but it takes a special skill to even pay attention to what the writer is saying and isn't saying mm. what the writer wants but hasn't put on paper yeah and sometimes you don't even have that opportunity that golden opportunity to talk to the director especially in the way our industry is structured sometimes you sold the script and that's the end and then one day you see the script on tv yeah so yeah i had this but i don't think that was it i just think that like there's a special place for people to interpret your work differently and i value that place yeah and yeah. i always look forward to interpreting other people's stories in my own way okay. it's very interesting and uh, yeah it's an yeah. interesting take. what do you do to kind of make sure you're not complacent you keep improving what you bring to the table with your writing 
Well, first of all, I wish I can answer that question because I am complacent. I realized that I am complacent. Like, it's, it's a flaw that I recently saw in this year of our law 2020 yeah. that I'm trying to change. Yeah, so I have been, like, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, if anyone knows the answer, please hit me up. I have realized that I, like, to some extent, not, as, not only as a writer, as just a general filmmaker, I've been stuck in, like in certain ways that I need to like change or I don't know how to put it I just need to expand my thinking yeah and like expand my horizon on certain things and this is something I'm working on this is something I noticed something I'm working on the ways that I've chosen to write and the ways that work for me in terms of improving that or working on my story it's just like I realized I was a better story storyteller when I knew less when I didn't talk a lot. Yeah. So I was more observant and my characters were like a lot more grounded. Yeah. So, and it, this this realization came from the fact that um, one day I was looking at my pictures. I was very, very, I was very quiet growing up. So I was looking at my baby pictures and I was just going through stuff, sorting out stuff in my room. Oh. And then I saw one picture of me smiling and I had told one of those my life stories to one of my aunties. And I just remembered how it started, how I saw the thing happen. Yeah. So the security man had broken a glass cup and he packed it and threw it in the dustbin. I saw it happen. Like, I was sitting down there, I was quiet, I saw it happen. But when he came to ask me, like, there was a lion that entered and a monkey that, like, the story went wild. So... I can remember that picture because I was smiling in that picture and my auntie had beaten me. Because yeah. the mega had, like came out and listened to the story, like the security man came out and was like, ah, I'm the one that, hey auntie, that cup you dropped here, I'm the one that broke it. I said, like, I know. And she, my auntie was like, I know, but like, let her finish first. So, <laughs> but like, I remember smiling in that picture because even though they had beaten me, I was fulfilled. Yeah. That, uh, like, oh my God, I got to express or tell. And I, at that time, as a child, I didn't realize that I was fulfilled because I got I got the opportunity to express my story. I was a very quiet person and that was the only time that I had spoken about that situation and I mm. got the opportunity to express myself. So I didn't know, at that time as a child, I didn't know that was why I was happy. But looking back and looking at the picture again, I realized that the reason why, because I was like, it was my own version of the story and I was proud of that version of the story. Yeah. And so I realized that when I started talking a lot and being more like, you know, being able to talk more and all that, I just realized that I stopped noticing things. I stopped yeah. being, so like once in a while, these days I take time for myself to just like sit down, watch people, watch people do stuff, go to a park, mm. just look at characters, just like, just build your own world in your head in your quiet time yeah. um the world has become very very noisy as an adult for me and yeah and sometimes when i want to tell because the world has become very noisy as an adult for me sometimes when i want to tell stories i fall back to my preset yeah. which is what has made me complacent so i fall back to things that i've studied or things that already works for me in terms of this character told that I can't just write it and go and then the script looks like a shadow of what you want mm. and so sometimes I tune out the noise yeah just take time to 
watch people and listen to people's conversations and stuff. Okay. So, um, yeah, you, you mentioned that maybe you have been a bit complacent. So how important is kind of discipline for a filmmaker, if, like discipline with craft and discipline with like maintaining relationships? That is a very good question, especially for me. So, um, discipline, yeah, there's like, there are a lot of things that people think, like when you say, oh, what's, what, what are the important things you should have as a filmmaker? People say, oh, talent, oh, um, creativity. <laughs> to be honest, the only, one of the most important things you should have as a filmmaker is discipline. And discipline has screwed me over my lack, discipline or lack of it, my lack of discipline has screwed me over times without numbers. And it's a, it's a sad thing to admit, but it's true. Yeah. When I first started my career, I thought that um, talent was enough because at the time I started, film was not really an acceptable um, an acceptable job description. Yeah. It was not. And so because of that, there were always everything I read from city people to, okay, I used to read those magazines. You can carbonate me. I'm very <laughs> old. But everything I read at that time just really had a negative view on film yeah. and filmmaking. And at the time that I consciously made up my mind to make film, aunties, uncles, everybody and their grandmother had a negative thing to tell me about film and why I shouldn't be a filmmaker and why, oh, it's not a good place for a well-educated woman. It's not a good place for a well-trained woman. It's not a good place for a woman with a good background. And so I just came into, unconsciously came into the industry, assuming that is man, inshallah vibes, like we move it away. Mm. But it's not that, especially with the new generation of filmmakers and the kind of filmmakers that are exist now 2020 and beyond yeah. discipline is very important if you want to work with the right crop or the right people you have to you have to be disciplined you have to time in delivering your work is very very important we always make jokes about editors and writers that don't deliver and it's all fun and games until you lose jobs because of it mm. i i'm a very slow writer and that has cost me a lot of like not because I'm a slow writer, but because I, I wasn't disciplined enough to like t time myself, my write, writing process properly mm. and give a date where I could, do you understand? This, I wasn't disciplined enough to like be proactive when I'm not meeting a deadline and then communicate, discipline and communication, very important. Those are yeah. the two things, two very important things to being a modern day Nigerian filmmaker, discipline and communication. And yeah, those two things like are things that I would, if anyone was coming in now and I had to give them an advice or something, it's just like, man, your talent is good. Your creativity is good. Yeah. But you see this discipline and this communication thing, you have to work on it. And communication is not just about crew members. Like film is told in different mediums. Mm. Like guy uh, from crew members to actors to editing and all that. And Film is such a collaborative effort that you need to know how to express yourself properly to your cast and crew. Mm. 
you need to be emotionally, mentally, physically intelligent enough to bring out those emotions, you understand? Yeah. From your actors. You need to you just need to like I don't know how to put it, you need to communicate what you want. It's not like it has gone beyond I want you to cry. Cry. Oh yeah, uh -huh. sit down here. Then turn like this in the camera and do this and you know, we've really gone beyond that. Yeah. So yeah, to me personally. Yeah. Minus the whole communication in delivering work and um, having a good working relationship with clients and your your colleagues in the industry. Yeah. Also communication with your actors. And, yeah very important and i think discipline and communication is what takes you far because people might open door for you doors for you yeah. but and people might open doors for you because of your talent oh i saw this talented writer i saw this talented director i'd like you to meet her and the door is open for you but it's discipline and communication keeps you in the room yeah. so this, these things are really really important these are things that um i learned a lot later than and i wish i learned earlier mm. it's not like people weren't telling me i yeah. just didn't think it was as important i was like oh talented already okay that is very very vain to see that but mm -hmm. like oh i know how to write or i know how to do this yeah, once i work on my talent and i work on my craft and once i'm creative enough they'll hire me and they'll work with my process whatever the process is mm. man if your process sucks process is annoying if you give people a headache if you give if you make producers lose money if every time you are working on the set half of the people there need to take high bp drugs no one will hire you huh. yeah. like it's true if you are unpredictable if you are un if you're not bankable yeah. like they can't predict your time your work process they can't bank on you to deliver work projects and all that you are not going to get the job yeah, yeah. okay so you, you talked about like um the first script you worked on and how you didn't want your name to be on it because you didn't feel it was good enough like um how how is that even like right now with kind of not feeling good enough with things you make well i can't speak for everybody i can only speak for myself yeah. as alexandra who i've never ever open to the last thing i worked on never ever felt any of them was good enough mm. i don't know if it's me my mentality or my thinking i'm just generally honestly i'm trying to just be really really honest here in this podcast i don't mm. know who is going to help you know if this story is going to be helpful to anyone or not <sighs> like i don't know like it's always even in there's always something i want to add yeah. in the edit room there's always something i want to add as a writer there's i don't know if it's imposter syndrome i don't know what it is but there's um like in that regard i'm a work in progress it's just a mentality stuff you understand you give what i do however is that i let a lot of people read my like i have a group of people a group of um colleagues in the industry and when i'm done with work my first draft and i'm talking about my first draft my shittiest draft I always send it to them yeah. to read and give me honest opinions. And then I like remove my emotions and my heart and my inadequacy out of the process. 
and then focus when i'm writing my first draft is my most creative i feel is my most personal draft my mm. first draft is my most personal draft is where i put all my emotions and when i tell when i tell the story it's i i leave nothing i leave my heart on the screenplay for my first draft yeah. like i tell the story with the story's personal to me in my first draft very personal and after that i give it to people to read and help me like to read and send notes and then i close my mind now my brain is working mm. it's no longer my mind it's no longer my emotions no longer my how personal the story is to me all those things are shut out mm. and that helps me deal with the inadequacy because now i'm working with um this thing i'm working with what like the notes and the corrections yeah. and so when i put all that to people that live from people that i trust i now send it to the client as my first draft so i have a an 0.1 a first draft 0.1 and a first draft 0.2 yeah. and what i usually send to the client as a first draft is what i have given someone to someone that i trust to look at and give me notes in terms of story yeah and then I put those notes into the story. And then I send. At that time, when I've done that with my 0.2 first draft, my like my mind is now on work mode as a technical writer, and my emotions are. It take a lot for me to bring my emotions back to the table. Like it take a lot. Yeah. So my emotions are now out of it. Okay. I mean, so yeah, this this is a helpful way of working. Like you know, you know, kind of what you feel about it and you've found a way to kind of mitigate against it but are you are you like thinking of a way that you get to a point where you don't need to send it to people you always want to do that it gets better with age i like i think the best thing about filmmaking is that um consistency makes you gives you the confidence that you're looking for mm. when i first started i used to send to like five people before I know and they understand but now i sent only four people that's great yeah <laughs> that's great that is good but yeah that's that's I, I think that's good for me i i don't think what i'm doing is bad i don't think um being overly critical about your work yes to some extent you shouldn't be you should just like but I mean, it is what it is. If I don't, if I continue this, if this is my process till the end of my career as a filmmaker, I'm still okay with it. Like, mm. I don't have a problem with this process. I'm not looking to change it anytime soon. I think yeah. it works for me and I'm okay with it. I'm not looking to change anytime soon. Um, yeah, it also happens, like, I also do the same thing for when I'm directing. Okay. yeah yeah but that's kind of more real time how do you more real time yeah so like you're on set you're directing no no Is no it... like when i'm editing when i'm directing so directing for me doesn't just end on set yeah you go to the edit room so when i'm directing and when i like when i'm cutting another i never like there's always something to add like mm. if you leave me you have cut 425 there's always something to add in every cut. So I do this thing where I shut my brain out. When I've like edited to like cut 25, like I shut my brain out, 
call someone that I trust. Sometimes not even a filmmaker, just someone that I trust their creativity. Mm. Might be an artist, musician, anything. Because I don't necessarily, like, I'm not calling in to check on the technical stuff. I have the editor and the whole lot of other people to work on the technical stuff. Yeah. Just calling you to tell me if the story works, if you can relate to it. It's always about relatability for me. Mm. Can people relate to my work? And I think that's the fear, that's where my in, that's my where my fear comes from. I I I have never written a character that is close to me in this life. Never written a character. I've written a car I've written characters that I've like taken things, quirks or mannerisms or situations from my life, mm. like one or two things, but never a character that is close to who I am as Alexandra. Yeah. And this is because I always, I feel like there'll, there'll be, a, there might be a part of me in the character, but like someone that I will say, oh, I, I feel so close to this character. I can relate. Mm -mm. It's always far from me because I feel like I am too weird to be on screen like mm -hmm. uh, like no one will understand me i always feel that way and i think that's where my fear comes from i always want my work to be relatable mm. and sometimes i feel like i'm too weird to be relatable i'm confident in my weirdness i've accepted it but have like i have accepted but what about other people mm. have they accepted it do they know how weird i am and sometimes that's what scares me like will people be able to understand what i'm saying will people be able to understand the perspective or where i'm coming from yeah and so that's why i give it to other people like can you relate to it oh yes i can relate to it i prefer this other prefer that oh okay I change it but like it's very important that people relate to my film because i'm not making film to put in my box i'm making film like i think my validation as a filmmaker comes from people understanding my expression mm. so i really want people to be able to relate to this film where i wanted you to cry i want you to cry where i wanted you to laugh i want you to laugh and that's where my fear comes from that i'm not because i feel too weird in real life I might not be as relatable to other people yeah okay um, you said that you're a better filmmaker when you didn't know too many technical things. Why it's is that? For a hundred percent sure. And I'd like to actually ask other filmmakers if they feel the same way. Like, if you've been in the industry for 10 years, if you feel the same way. I think I was a better filmmaker when I was naive. I was a better storyteller. I won't say I was a better filmmaker. That's the wrong word. Not a better filmmaker. Let me correct myself. I was a better storyteller when I didn't know a lot of technical stuff. Oh. I feel like I used to tell stories from the heart. So is this like um, technical script writing things or technical, technical filmmaking? Technical everything. Yeah. Technical everything. I think I was a better filmmaker when I didn't used to... F like, I, there was a time in my career where I focused a lot on the technical stuff. And I learned a lot of... And I forgot to just tell stories from the heart. Mm. Um, yeah, so now I am finding a balance, knowing the technical stuff and also allowing my story to breathe through it because just allowing my story to be what it is, a story, and not just put a lot of technicalities into it. Mm. So the simplest shots sometimes are... Let me give you an example when i was learning about the thing so this came this also came from a form of inadequacy like i always used to feel 
inadequate because I didn't go to film school. And I always felt like people that went to film school were infinitely better. Mm. So there was this... But did you, have, did you have like a lot of people to compare yourself with? Yes. So there's someone I used to look up to a lot in the mm. industry. But there's someone I used to look up to a lot in the industry. Yeah. And he went to film school. And it was a big deal for me that I didn't like at the time. It was a big deal for me. So... And I, I'd be in his office all the time, and I'd see his work process, and I'd just tell myself, like, if I went to film school, I'll be able to work like this, I'll mm. be able to do stuff the way he was. He is, what I keep saying was, he's very organized and very structured and everything. So I'm like, man, if I go to film school, I'll be able to be like this. So I used to borrow his books. He has a lot of books. So I'd borrow his books, read everything. If I see him reading something now, I would wait for him to, like, when I realized that he has finished reading, I'll borrow that book and go and read it. Mm. Or I'll look for the online version. If I can't wait, look for the online version and make mm. sure I read it. I you know, I just really felt like I would be a complete filmmaker if I went to film school. But I didn't have the facilities to go to film school. And time was not my side. I, or rather, I felt at that time, time was not my side. Mm. So I would, like, I was a YouTube alumni. I used to download anything from masterclass. If a filmmaker coughs on masterclass, best believe I'm analyzing that cough. And watch every masterclass, read every book, read every interview from every from every director, their PA, their dog, mm. their cat, anything that that director puts out about a film, I'm reading it. Yeah. And so coming into like I wasn't able to because I had a lot of information and I wanted to put and I didn't realize that a lot of directors had different processes and you just at that time I didn't realize that you just have to pick what works for you. Yeah. Do you understand? And so I would like maybe I would have read four directors, their work and their life works and all that and I want to put all those four directors work into my one short film. Yeah. And so you would see me trying to stress a scene so much, trying to trying to use a track and dolly, trying to get this lighting, trying to make the actor stand in a certain position mm. and not realizing that all those things don't work together. And the reason why it looked so exceptionally beautiful in this film is because only one component was used and it was used to complement the story that was told in that scene. Yeah. Well, no, for me, it was just trying so hard to make sure people knew that I knew the technical stuff. And so, yes, unlearning that was a very big process of my good. Like, was a very big part of my good. Unlearning that, I don't know why I learned it. I don't know, like, but unlearning that was very important to me. And so, I, can, I realize now that like sometimes a scene has to be simple. Like you don't need to do any, you just need to, some scenes are carried by the actor, some scenes are yeah. carried by the lighting, some scenes are carried by the camera work. And you just have to pick your battles and know what is what. And this is something that I didn't learn before. And so that is when I was a technical filmmaker. Hmm. Now, when I was not a technical filmmaker, when I didn't know all that stuff, what was important to me was how the actors said the word how real it was when i didn't know all those stuff when i'm directing like when i wasn't learning all the technical stuff when i didn't go on the learning spree on all the technical stuff when i'm directing i forget about all that 
because I know that all oh, these people know what they are doing. Yeah. And I'm always focused on the actor and what the actor is saying and how the actor is saying it and how relatable it is and mannerisms of said actor and all that. Mm. And so watching my older films and then my film, like comparing to films that had put so much pressure on the technical stuff, I genuinely, as not as, as an audience, I genuinely on the, um, I genuinely enjoy enjoyed my older films yeah. and I could relate to them because it was just the actor giving the best work or but in my the sound might not have been good the camera work might not have would be very basic hmm. but the story was very very like strong and all that and so yeah I had to learn all that I had to really understand that take a break from all the technical stuff and realize that um the reason like all those things are supposed to work together for the good of the story, yeah. not independently. Okay. I mean, it's a, it's a good thing to be reading books and to find out what people mm. have done and mm. kind of their view on things because that comes from like the probably decades of working in the industry. But how do you, how do you balance kind of reading a lot with um, reality, with actually making films? Again. You don't read again? Again, I, I I've stopped reading. Like I have conversations with filmmakers. I work based on experience. Now, what works for me and what works for the story. I hardly go out to really look for material or books again. I believe, I, like this, is, like every day we learn every day, mm. right? But I think I've mentally taken a break from like actively going out unless i'm looking for something specific yeah then i go out to look for that thing but as at that time i'm telling you it's no joke like i used to have a, i created a scheme a, a a reading scheme i had a, a curriculum yeah like literally i googled what they used to read in new york film school and i made my curriculum based of all like based on that mm. and every day i used to like try and meet up like that was how bad it was so unless i have something specific yeah that i want to read or i want to research then i go and do that but i have just let like for me just let the story breathe let everything i think i have just like if i have questions i ask mm. i have something i don't understand i research but it's no longer like work like academic work again mm. i'm not saying that people should stop researching or stop trying to get better no that's not what i'm saying just saying that like the reason why all this technical stuff exists i i'm just trying to explain that what i realized was that the reason why all this technical stuff exists is to complement the story and so at the point in my life i was lost in the technicalities and forgot that story was what was important yeah. it also happened to me in writing like formatting and getting all those like things you like have you ever written a well-formatted bullshit like well-formatted piece of shit like in terms of you use the right writings you use the right white writing stuff mm -hmm. you have all your formats you have all your um, technical stuff, all the things that you've read, all the things that you've seen people do in Hollywood yeah. for the story shit. Definitely. Yes. So, yes. That has happened to me too. 
Like I was the story was looking very clean and nice, but I wasn't feeling the story. Oh. So okay. just have to find a balance between technicality and storytelling and um, at the end of the day your story has to be relatable. Yeah. And people don't relate to the camera angles, people don't relate to the lighting. People relate to what was said, how it was said and how it made them feel. Yeah. Okay, um, over the years, you've worked on short films, feature films, TV series, web series. Um, with regards to writing, what have you learned from working on these different types of projects? So, what I've realized from making films is that Nigerians talk. So, people like in when we are doing, like when you go for all these workshops and master classes, even in Nigeria. And in that part, they say, oh, show not tell. That, 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 that is for Hollywood. Nigeria will talk a lot. We are more expressive. Mm. Ah, Mugbe, you say waiting. All those things. And I don't think those things. I think the Nigerian way of telling story is way different from the Hollywood way of telling story. Yeah. And I think we, like, we this tree i had this conversation with someone else in the industry and the person made me realize that it's not something i had realized and i might not be able to explain it well because i'm paraphrasing but hopefully one day you get to interview the person the person gets to talk because i i think other people need to understand this and learn this the way that i learned it um you see this tree act structure yeah like what if if what if we're forcing a, a square peg in a circle hole? Yeah. Yes. What if like because we used to tell stories before the structure, Hollywood structure and filmmaking came. And I'm not talking about the time of Kunal Fayan's father who or Bassi and Company. I'm not talking about... Is it Tales Tales by Moonlight? I'm not talking about Tales by Moonlight. I'm talking about stories that our fathers told. The stories that were told to our grandfathers and our grandfathers told to our fathers and our fathers told to us. And those stories were interesting. But if you look at it, the story of the hair and the story of the tortoise and the story of that, they, like... They don't necessarily. You can find a way to break it into a tree act structure. Yeah. But they think most of them don't necessarily come in that format. Yeah. Like you can find a way to break it into a tree act structure, but mm. it doesn't necessarily. And sometimes I feel like we've learned so much about Hollywood that we've forgotten to learn from ourselves, yeah. from the people around us, from our environment. One of the most important part of storytelling is environment and that's why taxi martin scorsese's taxi was so big because the environment was a character mm. new york was a character most of martin scorsese's films about new york and their there are characters in their own right like there's new york is a character for him and it's very important and interesting and you've never been to new york but you literally feel it the energy from it and ang lee he tells stories in different um, different continents from Life of Pi to Brookback Mountain to um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. And his environment is a huge part of his story. Curacao, yeah, that's the, well, I can't pronounce his name, but the 
Asian guy. Last Samurai. Um, Kurosawa. Kurosawa, yeah. Um, he's like all those things, like telling stories in like your own. Like if you're telling a story in a place, the environment should be part of the story. Huh. The people, their like their personal mannerisms and their personal quirks and like I don't know, English is failing me, but you understand what I mean. Yeah. Should be part of the story. And I think we lose that a lot, especially in contemporary Nigerian films. Even epic Nigerian films, contemporary Nigerian films try so hard to like it looks like we're forcing a certain I feel Nigerians talk a lot. Hmm. I feel like when I started learning like again back to technicalities, I was like, Oh, show more, say less. Yes, showing is important. Yes. I'm sure more serious, but like talking is a lot more important in the Nigerian context because you're making a film for people that talk a lot too. Yeah. Do you get? You're making a film for people that talk a lot too. You're making a film for forget it. We all male, female, picking male, female, child, infant. We all like I'm a boy in this country. You're making a film for people that talk a lot. You're making a film that for people that listen like just they're just. They are used to like stories and told in a certain way. They are used mm. to continuous stories. They are used to repetitive things. Like something will happen in church, and something will happen in the neighborhood. Mm. And you go to church and you hear it from church, and you go home and you still ask your neighbor. You've heard it from church. They've told you in church, but you went to and you knocked on your neighbor's door and you're like, "Come on, I heard this thing, eh?" So this is how the thing happened. And the next week, they are still talking about it. And the next market day, you go to the market and they'll talk about it. And then the weekly, during new people's age grade meeting yeah. in the village, you go to the meet, village meeting and they'll still table that thing. And then you go to the king's palace and they'll still table that thing. And it still happens in government, like Nigerian government, Nigerian society. This is something that has tried, like, like it's still relatable to us. Yeah. In contemporary Nigeria, like living in modern day Nigeria, still very relatable to us. Like, we need to find a way to put that in our stories somehow, yeah. somewhere that it's not boring. I understand how being repetitive and being too talkative and your characters being too talkative can be boring to your audience. Yeah. But I also understand that there's a space for us to create stories for us in that way, in that, like, there's a space, there's a, like, if there's a way we can put that into our story. And that's what I've learned um, as being on set, like, the, but bringing it back to your question. Yeah. That is one of the things that I've really, really learned, that Nigerians do things a lot more differently. And sometimes we're just lifting things. Even lighting, the yeah. way we light, you understand, is the way we light... Or our camera. I have sat down and I've talked about this thing. That's after I had this conversation with this colleague in the industry that pointed this out to me. Yeah. I sat down and I was like, what if, like, did there's a, another way to light our skin? What if most of the lighting techniques that we've learned is to light for it? Then what if there's a better way to tell our story through lighting? Like, in a, I don't know. Like, again. This is just my thoughts. Yeah. I mean, like, I think, yeah, discourse is one part of, like, exploring all this, you know, with story structure. Mm -hmm. 
there are different um, paradigms. And I think last, last, like everybody will choose what they want. Um, maybe a way for us to kind of explore how stories are different for us is maybe maybe somebody put it in a book coming up with a paradigm that works in this you know certain yeah, yeah certain way yeah. yeah so I've, I've thought about this i might not be right i might not like have the right words to truly explain how about i feel about the matter but like to be honest right the simplest way to say it is that nigerians talk a lot, a lot more than we put in our stories and we should find a way to like introduce that in our storytelling without boring the audience mm. we should find a way to really like focus on those kind of those parts of storytelling that makes us unique to our environment to our tradition and it's not about wearing traditional clothes or shooting in a hut yeah telling an epic story or telling a story from the roots or telling a nigerian story telling a nigerian story is much more than the clothes we wear and the huts we built to like it's so much more than that yeah and the language too you hear oh i'm telling nigerian story you tell it in yoruba it's so much more than just speaking yoruba telling a yoruba story is so much more than speaking yoruba i feel telling a yoruba story is telling a story in the yoruba way like how yoruba people used to tell stories in the mm. olden days that's what telling a yoruba story should be that's what telling a thief story should be that's what telling an Igbo and house story should be yeah. telling a story in their medium and their medium is not limited to language like if you've traveled around or you've had opportunities to speak with people in the villages or read books we don't even like really create books or knowledge or knowledge or stuff like that in nigeria but if we could just like if you could just extend do you understand mm. talk to an older an old person in the village that all her life or all his life was like she or he, he or she was the storyteller of that village yeah. either by music or poetry or and you could tell that the way they tell stories kind of the way they tell the story is kind of like very unique and different and also equally as interesting as the contemporary films we watch now yeah. and so telling stories telling you about story telling an evil story should be centered around telling a story the way people of that culture used to tell stories and i think that's what was name Kurosawa. yes did and that was what was really, really very unique and important. That's what Scorsese does, and that's what Angli does. When Angli is telling a story, in I'm not saying three act structure should not be there and all that mm. stuff. You should be, but when he's telling a story, from Book Back Mountain to um, Life of Pi to um, to Crouching Tiger, Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the essence of the environment, the culture, it's never lost. Yeah. It's not lost at all. You could feel it yeah okay so how about like with your directing what is something that you've learned that you feel people should know apart from you know like yeah we need to also apart from all the technical things we also need to focus on the actors and what they are doing what is something you've learned okay so uh, well so this is funny thing. First of all, there are a lot of things I've learned. I'm just looking for the most interesting thing. Yeah. But there's this funny thing. The first time I was directing my first feature-length film, um, 
a director, someone I look up to, someone I look up to called me and he was like, um, don't let anybody bully you on set. They want to bully you. They want to talk over you. Make sure you shout. If you see someone like, like, make sure you are authoritative and you are com- you command your set. Mm. And I trans like the translation for that was shouting, and that is what I did. So I was an emotional wreck on that set, shouting like a lost goat. Mm. I was just like I would just be shouting up and down. Like if I see like. If I feel threatened that, and someone sometimes my num my DP was a like someone I knew. It's not like the person was threatening me, or the person mm. was ju- will just genuinely want to give me a better perspective or a better angle. But because mm. I felt like because they had put that mentality in my head, like oh don't let anybody bully you on set. They will want to tell your story for you. Always fight for your story. So he will be like oh no. Like, it might be something as simple as I'll be like, oh, let's shoot from this angle. Mm. And he's like, no, I think this angle is better. I won't even wait for him to explain why this angle is better. I'm like, no, why try this? So, like, I was terrible. And I learned that man shouting is just not at all. Yeah. It's at all. So I went to another set. Um, like, years later, I think this year. I was aiding for someone and I didn't shout once and everybody on set was like, yeah, the ED, you're supposed to be commanding and I just laughed and in my mind, I was like, if you know how much I used to shout when I started, like, because this thing, I had to unlearn it. Mm. So I took this from my first film to other projects I had done, just shouting like a mad cow. Mm. Well, I just realized that working with people, like, it's not... Like, do you understand? It doesn't really translate. Being a director in control of your set does not translate to shouting around and all that like yeah. I thought it would. It was just, again, communication, talking to people, making sure people understand what you want to do. Mm. Um, if you have a disciplinary problem, we're all adults. Do you understand? Find a, you can find a way to... It just makes people feel more comfortable. Mm. It makes people... I feel open to discussing ideas with you. It makes the actors feel more relaxed and, and non-threatened and it gives them the best performance when they know that ugh, their director is on their corner oh. and on every other person's corner and like I can talk if I don't like something I can genuinely tell the director I can genuinely talk to the director about stuff. It just makes it like but I, I don't know, it might not work for other people, but yeah. I just, it's just a better environment for me. I know, like, we're Nigerians, and Nigerians are generally stubborn, so once in a while you have to, like, be authoritative, but just being on a relaxed set for me personally, not having to be shouting all the time, and I don't even like my ages to do that, so I understand that they need to run this set. Hmm. But I really don't like it when my ADs are just like, maybe I'm trying to figure shit out here. And I'm hearing, I want to do that. Like, Auntie, Uncle, you can tell them, just like walk up to the person. You can still be authoritative mm. and assertive, assertive to someone and talk to the person and the person will understand. Like, yeah. So, yeah, that's one thing I learned. Okay. It's a funny thing, it's not very important, but yeah. every other thing is mundane. Just like I learned a lot more. I learned that. You don't need to, you need to know enough of the technical stuff, but no, like, you don't, you need to, you don't need to, like, 
You don't need to be a technical juggernaut to be a good director. It's just knowing enough mm. to know that your DP knows what he's doing, your sangha knows what they are doing, and move on with life. In terms of the lighter and the camera department, I also learned that um, the discipline you bring to the set is the discipline that carries on the set. So if you come to work early, you eat when you're supposed to eat, you don't use your phone on set, you don't like the things that you want other people to do, mm. not using their phone on set, not eating on set, like just these little things that you want other people to do. If you as a director are doing it, then I, like it's just easier for other people to not sleep well. Yeah. Yeah, because I, as an AD or sometimes just an observer on a set, I see time, there are times when there are certain rules and regulations on the set set and every other person like the director is breaking it but mm. every other person should somehow not break that rule but the director is actively breaking it and it comes with this uh, oh i'm the director able i can do whatever i want mm. and then when the director is breaking it then the dp will break it because i'm not too far from the director so if the director is doing that can do it yeah. and then you are not very close to the dp so as a director, you're not very close to the DP, so you don't want to like rub the DP of the wrong way. So you're trying to tell him to drop your phone, but you're still using your phone. Mm. And then you shout at the DP, and the DP is like, why did they embarrass me in front of crew on top phone? And then there's this shout back, and then producers come and say, pray fight on top yeah. phone that they see they should not have used in the first place. Yeah. And an, an example of that is we were supposed to shoot in another location, and we needed to wear um, the crew shirt. Yeah. And I noticed that when, especially in Lagos, wearing the crew shirt is insulting somehow. Some to who? I don't know. They feel like it's very degrading. Like it's to, very degrading. To who? I don't who know. The like they just feel like like the whole crew. Yeah, they just feel like oh, I don't want to be wearing crew. Like obviously, junior crew members will do it. PA, they don't have a choice. But like the senior who people people consider as the senior crew members oh. always feel like ah why would they wear crew shirts why would they? and i noticed that when we on set so i didn't used to wear crew shirt because we're shooting in a confined environment and i was when they were sharing the crew shirt the producer was like oh everybody should wear safety director and i didn't understand why that rule was me because i'm still a crew member and so nobody wore, nobody used to wear crochet and it was just like, but we needed to go out and we needed to shoot and we needed to wear the crochet. And when they announced that, oh, everybody's wearing crochet from, and like everyone needs to be on the crochet except the director, the same announcement. DOP said in Europe, I'm not going to wear anything. His assistant, the second, the camera guy, his two camera guys were like, what are we wearing crochet? And I'm like, well, do you know how long I've been doing this? I'm not wearing crochet like a Jew boy. <laughs> Sound guy said he wasn't going to wear crochet. Gaffer guy said he wasn't going to wear crochet. And it was just all these moments that I was hearing on the side. And I was like, oh, okay. And then the next day in the morning, I woke up and I wore my crochet and I came to the bus. And I, was, I made sure that I was like the first person downstairs from the hotel. I mm. made sure I was the first person. Like, and I did this very 
um thing like i really wanted to see them on my crochet that i knocked on dp's room to ask for something that i didn't need i think it was toothpaste or something when i dressed and i came with my brush and i was like ah oh, get toothpaste i think i can't find my and he saw me and he was like ah d i wearing crochet i said yes now everybody's wearing crochet and i just made a conscious effort to come down early with my crochet yeah and then everyone came down with their crochet and it made me feel so and that's what made me realize that sometimes we like uh, like it's just like that discipline that you want on set mm. as a director as a producer like you just have to like show like show it unconsciously people will step in and if someone is not stepping in oh, back to show don't tell yeah 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 yeah. yeah. i mean but this one is real life yeah yeah and if, if someone is stepping out of line it's easier to spot that person and the person will self-correct or it's easier to correct that person it's easier to call that person out mm. as opposed to everyone setting stepping in line the whole discipline thing on set right sometimes i feel like they require certain people to be disciplined mm. and then other people can do whatever they want yeah i also make it a point to this is one that most times i regret not all the time i try not to regret it but i make it a point of duty to eat crew food like and i i see sometimes like some certain level of actors like some kind of actors like you bring a an a-list actors yeah, and then you have to like cater to them especially or you have to cater to the director especially or the producer has a special food I feel very very bad and I don't like that segregation and I always try to eat crew food and if I don't like crew if I don't like what is being cooked mm. I always sort myself out personally yeah. or I always have a snack to eat but I try not to complain because I don't like that segregation that is created it's something as simple as food or as simple as art and craft like like it's um a kind of drink is given only to the director and the producer and all that mm. and the kind of drink is given to the other people i don't like that they are made to feel that way and i feel in some way in the tiniest little way sometimes it translates to the work that is being created to mm -hmm. the film that has been created and i feel like if everybody's eating the same thing the producers and the A-list actors are all eating the same thing. They make sure it's good enough for everybody. They will make sure it's good enough for anyone, everybody. But because they are not eating the same thing, the food is all shit. Yeah. And yeah, so I always feel bad when that happens. At least the few films that have been that have produced and have been required to like being in charge of that as a producer being in charge of that department i always make sure that the food is top-notch because i know how important that is mm. i know how it makes people feel when everyone is eating the chicken the salad like everyone is eating that good good food the food is very very good you don't have to create a different kind of menu for the a-list actors yeah like i i don't get the need to make a-list actors or so, like i don't get the list to like you're an alien you're an a-list actor by craft by profession and by a bank account like how much you're being paid and all that mm. and it's good and but the fact that like i have to go overboard to like i have to just go overboard by budget or anything to create a segregation from to create a line a 
demarcation from you and the other actors mm. i feel it doesn't make my work easier as yeah. a director doesn't it doesn't make my work easier as a director i feel like creates this kind of gap mm. and i don't like it yeah okay so i also don't like when like big actors a-list actors are scheduled in the middle of shoot so i have this big actor that is coming on set Right. And I know why it's done. Most times they're scheduled in the middle of shoots because beginning of shoot is usually very crazy and you have a lot of downtime, especially in Nigeria. So middle of the shoot, you guys have gotten your act together and you're not going to waste time and waste the person's money and mm. all that. But when the person is coming, like, oh, this big actor is coming on set today. Yeah. Do you understand? Yeah. I, I, some, as a director, sometimes I feel the anxiety, mm. positive or negative, from the other actors that have been on set for a while. I can feel some people trying to be nonchalant and trying to be indifferent, even though they feel a certain kind of way. Like, they might not show it, though, but it's the anxiety of just having this important person is coming and so this person is where i want to be so i have to bring my a game mm. and you might have been bringing your a game all through production days like you've been yesterday you were good day before yesterday you were good but there's this anxiety that comes because there's this um feeling on set yeah. that someone extra special is coming mm. and so if you're working with a young actor maybe first time, second time, or an upcoming actor, or someone that's really working on his craft. They might not say it, but they might be feeling it. You can, maybe they are reading extra hard, or they are trying to, like they're trying to think, they're trying to make it look like it's not getting to them, but it's yeah. getting to them. And yeah, sometimes I notice it and I don't like it. So I'd like to figure out, most times I always like to figure out a way to just like, if the best thing to do, if I can have the actor come on set one or two times, do like separate, instead of having all the scenes at once, which is cost effective. So mm. you schedule, schedule three days for the oldest top actor scenes and then the person come and run it on in three days. I know it's cost effective. I just like prefer like it to be spread or at least the person should be on set two days prior or the person should just like, I don't know, just make the environment less, like, especially for my actors that are going to work with you, mm. less tension. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, the Nigerian film industry is growing. Um, there are a lot of things that we need to kind of um, improve. What is your top priority? Our question is for God, because <laughs> like, Man, if you ask me, a lot of things to improve now. But should I start mentioning it? Let's mention the, like the biggest one for you, the one that kind of I think frustrates you. Is important. Yeah. Everything is important. I think we're getting on with structure, discipline. I have I one of the most important things of my career is that. Um, I was actually nurtured and I started my career with very disciplined men in terms of all the um, abuse stories you hear. I started my career with very disciplined men and I never, I was fortunate enough to work under men that respected women so much and I never ever, never ever came across that. 
It's like obviously when you when you grow older and you are stronger in the industry, no one can bring that to the table or anything. But and even if they do, yeah, like yeah, more experience to deal with stuff like that. Yeah, fortunate enough to have had people like that in the industry, so I know that. That is something that people like. It's not something that flies. It is something that people have worked on for a while. Obviously, days of Omakaigui and times like that, this whole abuse stories and predatory stories were a lot more then than now. So I know that people have worked on that. I also know that people have worked on the quality of the type of film I make in terms of cameras and all that. That was the problem. Even though we've lost story, because like we switched story for camera yeah i feel like we had better stories back in the day again that again that's a subjective take very subjective take. but i feel like we had better stories back in the day so i like yeah in terms of technicalities and camera work and all that we worked on that packaging is there our packaging will really good what are we packaging i don't know but our packaging work. i think what we should work on is censorship i think we are more censored now than we were 20 something years yeah. Yes. So do you mean on the government side of things? Gov- government. Like, okay, not, like not that we're censoring ourselves. Of, okay. When I say censorship, right? I'm not talking about the fear of telling the kind of stories. Can you tell the Boko Haram story now with your full chest? Everything, the way you feel about it. Can mm. you tell the story about answers? You're probably not good to cinema or something. Can you tell the story about answers? Can you tell a story about a governor now? That committed murder. Probably. And that's probably the censorship not. I'm talking about. Yeah. And it goes beyond not only this. Telling a an important okay, so telling a story about just a very, very unbiased story. Like the story might not be about government or anything in government. The story might just have just one component that you don't want to lie about. Mm. This this gov- this governor that collected bribe was important to what happened to this person's life. Mm. I don't want to lie about the fact that you want to use the right name and all that, but you can't do it. You now mm. have to create a different state with a different name. No, how do we create our histories through media when we cannot even tell ourselves the truth? Yeah. Not knowing that if I want to tell a story about that part of the Nigerian system, I have to lie. I have to look for a different color. I have to make it look like. So annoying that I cannot just tell a story about Nigeria and be Nigerian about and I'm talking about tribe. Yeah. I can't tell a story about um um the how Fulani people got to Ilorin. Like the Fulani, the war, like that story. I can't tell a story about that. I can't tell a story of my own take on a monarchy, like yeah. the Igbo people or the Benin people because like every good part has a bad part. You see how they are telling a story of the crown yeah. and how they are bringing out both the good, bad and the ugly part. Mm. I can't tell a story about like in Nigerian revolution. I can't tell a story about civil and bring out the good, the bad and ugly. Mm. Like on both sides, both the government and the rebels, I cannot tell it. I cannot tell an unbiased story in Nigeria and it's annoying that I can't do that. Yeah. It's very, very annoying. It's very annoying that when I want to tell a story about Nigeria, I have to like I I have to be cautious about this. I have to remove this. I cannot talk about this. I cannot tell this. And it's 
just becoming worse. Becoming yeah. worse. Because sometimes you don't even want to tell a story about the good people. You want to tell a story about a very bad person in time. Yeah. But you want to tell the story about this bad person that had this redeeming quality. Mm. But because you're going to tell this... You know, you now hear takes like, oh, if you tell a story about it, you have to only tell about... You have to only talk about the redeeming quality. Or you yeah. cannot talk about all this other bad stuff. But the redeeming quality doesn't stand if you don't understand that this person is like this. Yeah. Do you think there's a solution inside? Well, oh, it's good. It's good, though. Like, for me, right now, no? I just think we should, again, there's this filmmaker that I... There's this filmmaker that I really, really respect that pushes boundaries, right? And doesn't care. Nigerian filmmaker tells the story as it is. And that's a good thing. So, the best thing I can say, or the best of um, the best solution is just men have balls. Pray to your God to accept your soul in heaven. Have balls and then do it. Yeah. If you perish, you die for a good cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Alex, for coming on the podcast. All right. Thanks for having me. We have come to the end of this episode. Please remember to leave a rating and a review. You can send your questions or feedback on social media. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Selego Film and the podcast also on Instagram and Twitter at the Niger Film Pod. See you on the next season and have a happy new year.